0: Welcome to the sixth episode of the Dialogical Spaces podcast.
1: Dialogical Spaces is a podcast which aims to reflect critically on structural issues affecting diversity and inclusion in our research, education, and practices. We do this specifically with the community of the University of Twente, but all other listeners are, of course, also more than welcome. During seven episodes, we will draw on a series of webinars, interviews, and conversations about inclusive education and critical pedagogies, decolonializing the curriculum, shaping universities for gender diversity, and discussions about race and technology in research. I am Fena Imara-Huslaut, a PhD researcher at the faculty of ITC at the University of Twente. And
0: I am Ana Maria Bustamante Duarte, and we will be accompanying you today. For this episode, we invited Dr. Rosalba Itaza Garza to discuss what can be learned from students, teachers and staff struggling for the decolonization of curricula in and outside European higher education. This conversation encouraged participants to reflect about the relevance that these learnings hold for their own institutional and pedagogical context. Rosalba is an associate professor at the International Institute of Social Studies in Den Haag and her research centers on how decolonial thinking and plural feminisms can help in understanding international relations, academia, and learning practices. Before entering academia, she was an activist in Mexico City, working for a network of social movements bringing together indigenous and feminist leaders.
2: The first part is uh, explaining or is trying to share with you a little bit of um, what is orienting my approach to decolonizing the curriculum in higher education as a decolonial feminist. The second part, I will try to share with you some of the ideas of uh, why, what for, how we can actually work collectively to decolonize the curriculum. I need to make a clarification before I move forward. And I need to stress that my talk will be mostly grounded on experiences of higher education geographically located in the so-called global north. And therefore, I am aware of its partiality in relation to ongoing struggles, contributions and debates located geographically in the so-called global south. Nonetheless, I am going to be challenging normative positions by centering on questions emerging from an epistemic or cognitive South and a liminal positionality and subjectivity as a woman of color in higher education here in the global North. So I can only hope that some of the ideas that I'm sharing with you today will be relevant to stimulate many other conversations across uh, different geographies.
0: The presentation was actually full of maps and images and photographies. We will actually want to start with one of the first maps that she presented, that it was the map with regard to the academic knowledge production, let's say knowledge in between parentheses somehow.
1: Yeah, the size of countries according to the publication of articles. So it really shows in one image how unequal that is, that basically in that map, how it was created. The global south almost didn't exist. Europe, the UK, the US were completely bloated up, taking almost all the space of the world map.
2: First of all, there is a staggering amount of inequality in the geography of the production of academic knowledge, which is something that might not be a surprise for many of you, but there are some interesting elements.
0: In the next section, Rosalba references a report from the Oxford Internet Institute and describes these dynamics in more detail.
2: For example, the United States and the United Kingdom, represented in the, uh, the, 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 the biggest two um, squares, publish more index journals than the rest of the world combined. Western Europe, in particularly Germany and the Netherlands, also scores uh, relatively well. Most of the rest of the world then scarcely shows up in these rankings. Some of them are totally uh, invisibilized. One of the starkest contrasts is that Switzerland is represented at more than three times the size of the entire continent of Africa. The non-Western world is not only underrepresented in these rankings, but also ranks poorly on average Um, citation score measures. Despite the large number and diversity of journals in the United States and the United Kingdom, these countries managed to maintain higher average impact scores than almost all other countries. In a more recent study by the same authors from 2015, they work with some submissions data from SAGE journals. Amongst other things, their data focus on where authors of articles come from and primary discipline of the journal they are submitting to. And there are very interesting uh, patterns. First, more academic content coming from the global north and from the global south. There is more academic content coming from the so-called global north. Africa, in particular, is notable for its absence. Most countries on the continent fail to register even a single journal article submission in the time frame they are using. Second, there were only two countries that register a consistently large number of submissions in every category, the UK and the US. This relates to the third point that they highlight, that a handful of Asian countries, China, India and Iran, register a high number of submissions only in esteemed subjects. Now, why I'm sharing this? Because I want to invite you to consider the structural inequalities embedded on what we all call knowledge in each of our disciplines before going to my next point.
0: So now we are actually sharing this because we wanted to invite you to consider the structural inequalities embedded on what we all call knowledge. And particularly in each of our disciplines before we continue advancing with the conversation.
1: So Rosalva talks about the issues of diversity in three different levels. The first of all, uh, the lack of diversity in uh, the people at universities. Secondly, the lack of diversity in decision making. And finally, the lack of diversity in the knowledge that we actually have. So this translates to what we've constantly been talking about, about that we need to think about diversity and inclusion in our education, our science, and our practices at the university.
0: So in summary, the actual problem that Rosalba is talking about is the following.
2: In 2016, I was part
1: of a multidisciplinary
2: team of researchers that conducted an investigation on the state of diversity at the University of Amsterdam here in the Netherlands. And there were many interesting findings that might be useful for you too regarding diversity and inclusion. But. What I want to stress here in this presentation to connect back with the VMI research that I was just make reference about is that as a team, we found that the lack of diversity was considered unsustainable and incompatible with excellent science by one biologist and one medical doctor. And this was quite interesting then, as it is now, because in higher education, and in particularly in the Netherlands, diversity has been constantly associated with lack of academic excellence and the so-called lowering of standards. However, as it becomes more and more evident, it is the lack of plurality what lowers the quality and excellence of so-called good science. Today in higher education in the Netherlands in particular, one perspective which is perhaps the less rejected one is addressing the challenge of lack of diversity in science through the inclusion of a plurality of peoples that are studied, right? We are hearing constantly about the need to pluralize our samples and reaching out a vast plurality of target groups. A second perspective on diversity is the one that focuses on addressing the unbalanced representation of our current plural societies in the university's staff, and particularly the under-representation of minority-sized sectors of society, and particularly of Black women, in positions of decision-making, while at the same time, these same sectors are over-represented in support services. A third perspective on diversity in higher education is now looking into the lack of diversity in knowledge practices, including the governance of academic research, of funding institutions, research methodologies, pedagogies and teaching practices, and of course curricula. It seems that an awareness on the absence of plurality within the whole higher education is driving policies and interventions that focus on a demographic understanding of diversity who is at a particular institution, who is including my curricula. However, research on the inclusion of diversity in higher education reveals if inclusion or that sort of inclusion doesn't question fundamentally the structural inequalities represented in the cartogram, then these policies are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Unfortunately, in many cases, these policies of inclusion have been window dressing moves, ticking boxes exercises. And don't take me wrong, please. Representation matters, especially for first-generation students, but it is not enough. And many people around the world have been repeating this ad infinitum. I'm not saying or claiming anything new about it. I just want to reiterate that point. An alternative perspective is the one that I want to share with you today and is first and foremost informed by higher education, geohistorical, and body political origins. But what does this um, historical and body political origins mean? Basically, it means to foreground that higher education as we know it today is a consequence of the expansion of the European modernizing project, like the nation-states and the capitalist system, and how this origin has been constantly covered up by normative claims of higher education as a positive common good to be defended at all costs. However, as part of the expansion of the European modernizing project, higher education is also implicated in epistemicide. In other words, the expansion of higher education is implicated in the erasure of plural worlds and knowledges. And unfortunately, our teaching fails to address how more fast science is achieved, often at the expenses of the life of Earth and the suffering of others. And this is consistently across disciplines and not only in the social sciences. As a quick example for those with the privileges to do so, think about the footprint of your field world troubles, the waste produced by conference organizing. For those across the colonial divide, think about how the systematic violence of your quasi-eternal precarity and constant disregard of your humanity within and by higher education is a form of erasure too. Another example for this point that, of course, I'm aware that requires larger discussions will be the historical entanglements between the emergence of modern disciplines as we know them now, and colonial extraction and and genocide. In short, producing academic and expert knowledge often comes at the expenses of the life of others and of Earth. And we have failed enormously to develop ways of teaching, working, and researching that not only address this, but that actually abolish
1: this. Rosalba raised some really important questions during the webinar. Specifically, she asks, Are our knowledge systems in higher education part of the problem? And how are these entangled with colonialism? In contrast with the paradigm on diversity and inclusion in higher education, the task of decolonializing the curriculum starts by asking these sorts of questions.
0: But before these questions are answered, we want to go back to what Rosalba means by decolonization and colonization.
2: Decolonization, as many of you might know better than me, means different things for many different people, across times geographies. In the 1950s, 1960s, decolonization meant the end of colonial rule and was linked to challenging imperialism. In contemporary North America, First Nation scholars, very well known, Eve Tuck and Wayne Jiang, have warned us about the dangers of using decolonization as an ambiguous metaphor for everything that we want to improve in societies and schools. For First Nations peoples and indigenous communities across Central and South America, the decolonization of disciplinary canons and research methodologies has had self-determination and autonomy as political and ethical horizons. In North America, the appropriation of First Nations land by Ivy League universities' forefathers has also been addressed very interestingly and very creatively. This context is bringing renewed new attention to the Eurocentric and anthropocentric biases of research methodologies, the colonial origins of modern disciplines and cultural institutions, including, of course, universities, but also national archives and museums. Recent research in Europe has investigated these calls for the decolonization of universities. And we have been detecting that despite the local, um, let's say, specificities, There is a common interest in addressing the visible and less visible colonial legacies of universities, such as removing the status of former colonizers, Cecil Rhodes in South Africa, the first one that comes to our mind, or the absence of women and people of color work in curricula.
1: This forces us to think and reflect about the role of northern-based universities in the efforts to decolonialize.
2: In the Netherlands, cultural institutions are in the process of shedding their colonial imaginaries, like the name change process of de David's Center for Contemporary Art in Rotterdam. Research focused on cultural institutions in Europe has also investigated institutional practices of knowledge preservation and representation, revealing the implication in their erasure and denial of plurality.
1: We've left you with... A lot of concepts and a lot of issues to think about. But one of the great things about Rosalba's webinar was that she also gives us tasks um, that we can start to implement in our daily life at the university, in our research, um, to uh, start decolonializing the curriculum. So she talks, uh, talks about four tasks, the task of positionality, humbling, listening, and desilencing. We will listen to her, explain it. But while you listen to her, um, we're gonna repeat a question that she asked us as well. And that is while you're listening, try to think who is responsible for carrying the burden of these tasks and for what for? Yeah, honestly, if there's one thing that you take from this whole series, is that it's question this question.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let me speak of the task of positionality. I have already mentioned it, but let me be more specific about that. A decolonized curricula enables and encourages institutional practices in which the positionality of the dominant or one-sided version of history is talked about, not denied. This conversation is a key source of learning and unlearning. Practically, this means to identify the opportunities to promote an institutional culture that promotes collective learning on the ways in which a particular perspective contributes and is complicit with the erasure of the other perspectives and the other histories. If you take any of our current modern disciplines, you will find many examples about this. Furthermore, This collective learning needs to be attentive to the processes of documentation and preservation of knowledges that are complicit with reproducing colonial divides and with the consumption of the life of Earth and others. Think about the privatization of genetic information on seeds or the preservation of human remains of former colonized peoples in museums across Europe whose interests and needs of education are being served by these practices. The task of humbling is parallel or run simultaneously to the previous task of positionality. And it should not be confused with cancelling or cancel culture. From a decolonial feminist perspective, the processes of humbling previously accepted valid truths. It's a crucial pedagogical opportunity as well. That has the potential of providing institutions with a consciousness of the partiality of their knowledges and of the importance of listening towards multiple realities. The task of humbling enables us to unlearn the single stories and enable practices of epistemic or cognitive justice. That leads me into the task of listening.
1: Before we continue with the task of listening, I want to emphasize a bit the importance of these tasks of humbling and positionality, and particularly in thinking about research done in the global north about southern countries like my own. These tasks that Rosalba has given us have helped me so much with thinking through my research and what I can actually say, uh, what voice I have and what value it might or might not have. Uh, For other contexts. Now let's continue with the tasks of listening and desilencing. The task of
2: listening centers the process of decolonization on non normative voices and histories within institutions and in wider society. Encouraging, facilitating and creating the conditions for sustaining conversations with people of color, non-heterosexual, first and second generation immigrants, refugees, no bodily able people and those for poor or marginalized backgrounds is fundamental for the process of opening curricula to epistemic plurality. Investing in developing non-violent methodologies, non-epistemically violent methodologies to sustain these conversations is fundamental for decolonization. Paradoxically, or perhaps logically, under this context, the people who is developing these non-violent methodologies or non-epistemic violent methodologies are most of the time in precarious labor situations. Across higher education in different institutions in the global north. This leads me to the final task that I want to share with you the task of de silencing. And I'm borrowing this term from Olivia Rutatsiwa's seminal article on decolonizing development studies. Decolonization of curricula should do the work of unsilencing histories. It's not about discovering anything, it's unsilencing what has been constantly being. Uh, either reduced to nothingness or not intelligible to any of the conceptualizations that we claim to be universal or applicable. This task of desilencing entails recognizing the histories that have been minoritized or sidelined. Our plural societies and complex challenges demand a richer, more complex, and nuanced understanding of our entangled past and present. But what do I mean with positioning knowledges? And how is this connected to the decolonization of the curriculum? As a bicolonial feminist, I am interested in the positionality of all knowledges, which basically means that knowledges are generated in places, by bodies, in ecologies, and that knowledges are local. But sometimes we are only able or trained to see their expressions in global designs or universalized categories. Understanding knowledges as local doesn't mean that these are better or pure knowledges or that these are disentangled from international spheres or global interactions as the cartogram is also trying to transmit somehow. It means that all knowledges have a specific geo-historical and body political origin. Or in other words, that all knowledges are generated in concrete places and ecologies by concrete bodies. It also means that all our knowledges are partial. This doesn't mean that everything goes or to be against expertise or science which is a deeply problematic characteristic of our turbulent fake truth times. The partial characteristic of knowledges emphasizes an awareness of the limits of each of our perspectives and promotes uh, what we call an open approach to knowledge. An open approach to knowledge and expertise is an approach for geo-historically positioned forms of expertise that aims to encourage curiosity, reciprocity, dialogue, collaboration. So I have already mentioned that the uh, diversification of staff and the inclusion of previously marginalized voices has been fought for across Global North universities. The policies that focus on a democratic, sorry, on a demographic understanding of diversity, addressing the questions of who is at a particular institution are relevant, but nonetheless insufficient if the task of decolonization is promoting epistemic or cognitive justice. In other words, if we are asking whose knowledge is as relevant and why. Decolonization as an epistemic task doesn't mean to be less attentive to the unequal material conditions under which claims about the validity of knowledge are made. It calls for the overcoming of monocultural approaches to knowledge, which are entangled with those material conditions. For institutions of higher education, it means to overcome the negation of the epistemic diversity of the world and of Eurocentrism, as it is unuttered monocultural approach to knowledge generation and preservation. A decolonized curricula enables and encourages institutional practices in which the positionality of the dominant or one-sided version of history is talked about, not denied.
0: So on all of this conversation about decolonization, decolonizing research, decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing the university, actually Rosalvo also speaks about Decolonizing from a feminist perspective. So let's hear what she says about it.
2: Decolonization from a feminist decolonial perspective means to go beyond eurocentric solutions for problems created in the first place by that Eurocentric by that monocultural way of understanding and knowing the world. Therefore, it is about ensuring the accessibility of marginalized sectors of a society into knowledge and cultural institutions, but not just that. Likewise, decolonization will not be just about the diversification of sources of information and approaches to preserving, producing, or representing what is deemed knowledge. Once again, let me be clear. It is necessary to guarantee the access to diverse sectors of society, particularly those that have been historically absent at national cultural institutions. But this is not enough.
1: Rosalba introduces the concept of positioning knowledge as one of the important steps in decolonializing the curriculum. So if I um, try to sum this up in a few sentences, this refers to the fact that all knowledge is situated and that we have to teach it in that way as well. Um, I remember she said at one moment that all knowledge always starts from somewhere and not never from nowhere. And we need to acknowledge where we come from, um, where the curriculum comes from, and consider its value in that context.
0: Yeah, she actually also reflects a little bit on, um, on the content, particularly of what it is called the canon when we are teaching. Like these main authors that we always refer to in particular fields and um, and she questioned by introducing this positioning of knowledges she was particularly talking about let's reflect who we are teaching from where they are coming from who are they and um and I start questioning because sometimes those canon cannot be let- relatively changed because the whole field is based on them but questioning them it is very important
1: yeah I think this also refers to the fact that knowledge produced in Europe and the US is never considered European or American knowledge. It's always considered just knowledge, while if we talk about insights stemming from indigenous communities uh, in the majority world, then we constantly refer to the place and context where it emerges from. I Salva think what she wants asks to do is this normalize. One very important uh, question. Where, like, talking about in which context knowledge is created and where it's uh, shared, um, so that we also see it in that context and not as something universal.
2: Can our universities respond to the possibility of an ethical life that is not structurally implicated with the suffering and the consumption of life of Earth and others? I have been involved in different uh, collective efforts to reassess knowledge generation practices in higher education in relation to their colonial past. And this basically means that we are spending time to reflect on our own implication in the reproduction of racial hierarchies at the core of the disciplines, categories and pedagogies we work with. Our point of departure has been to take Um, seriously the legacies of colonialism and to understand that higher education like in the Netherlands has failed to be geo-historically positioned. With this, I mean that the way we transmit the knowledge we produce via research is not positioned and often contributes to occlude instead of revealing the geo- and body-political location of the knowledge we are teaching. Indeed, Teachers who do position the knowledge they teach are
1: often discouraged and rarely supported to do this kind of work. Rosalva suggests implementing a pedagogy of relationality as a way to implement these things in your classroom.
2: This is not simply participatory approach or uh, letting the students participate. It is something a little bit different. Through different exercises that, if you want, or different examples, if you want later on, I can I can share with you. We allow the plurality of the backgrounds and positionality of the students to be central, to be um to not be suppressed, but on the contrary, that is what enriches the learning and the experiences of everyone. But of course, this cannot happen without the creation. For the conditions of a safety um, a space in which this plurality of backgrounds can actually be listening to. That's why we were also um, or I was also presenting before the task of listening which goes hand in hand with the task of humbling and of course of creating safe opportunities and safe spaces for people to share uh, their backgrounds. As part of this discussion we invited
0: Javier Martinez.
3: Thanks, Anna, for the invitation. Um, Yes, I work at ITC in the Department of Urban Planning and Management as associate professor. I work uh, in topics related to uh, urban inequality, quality of life, community well-being. Yeah, so this is basically uh, my work at ITC. My background is in architecture and planning and my PhD in urban geography. So these are my disciplines.
0: We invited Javier for this talk because he is very interested on the topics of critical pedagogies. He has been implementing and discussing these at the Faculty of ITC at the University of Twente. He is a strong advocate for moving from, for example, uh, principles of um, competition to more collaborative, based, action-based kind of uh, oriented ways of education. So we really wanted to hear what he talked about everything that Rosalba said and what he could reflect uh, from this on on his education and the education at the faculty.
3: I think that we can do more than what we are doing and start certainly to reflect more on some historical aspects of our discipline. And for example, we have indeed students uh, in the University of 20 and ITC in particular coming from all over the world and one possibility is to give more space for self-reflection and that we, at the beginning of the course, we are more active in trying to find out the knowledge that our students already have and maybe help them in reflecting on that historical path that they have in their own uh, countries, on why they are doing certain practices in planning. And this is recognizing that students are, they already have knowledge and that, um, yeah, we only need sometimes to give more space for that self-reflection. In particular, when it comes to recognizing that maybe some ways of planning are just inherited but may not work in the context they live, and some students come with expectation that what they see in Europe or in the Netherlands in particular can be Translated or copy pasted, let's say, in their home country. So, also, reflection of whether they can apply, of what if the practices they see here can be applied. And sometimes we tend to refer to best practices, and sometimes international organizations use that terminology. And that has always the risk of, uh, again, colonializing knowledge or having the impression that these good practices or best practices can be applied uh, I- everywhere in the Global South. So the, having this constant reflection is important, this idea of humbling and also um, listening. I think they are also very useful. The other aspect of desilencing, and I understood that from uh, the presentation of Rosalva, is also to bring in more the voices of those who are more uh, marginalized uh, or those who, are, who have been silenced is something that's uh, in our discipline can be uh, included in some of the topics that we teach. And I think, for example, in, in some disciplines like urban planning, we can incorporate more uh, discussions on, for example, environmental justice or inequality, uh, segregation. Yeah, So I think that it's maybe easier than in other disciplines to reflect on issues of silencing and how we can desilence those.
1: We, of course, have to acknowledge that this is an extremely difficult task and especially for teachers within universities who are constantly overworked, underpaid, under precarious working conditions. Um, So Javier talks a little bit about these challenges and specifically uh, um, how they have been amplified during Corona.
3: Yeah and also uh, recognizing that uh, many of the international students that come to the University of Twente are migrants and uh, and they live uh, in and some of them experience situations of discrimination but uh, sometimes uh, yeah this remains invisible to to us and that we don't give space also to reflect on that in our learning and teaching activities so that's also is an element that we could incorporate and see also how we can transform so many times we hear that students they come for two years for a masters uh, in the Netherlands but some of them hardly have any contact with the dutch society so that's something that uh, yeah that they feel uh, isolated and certainly during the covid pandemic that was even more an issue uh, that that's something that uh, still we can improve and recognize the more the background of the the students
0: and in particular he reflects this uh, under the lenses of critical pedagogy and everything that it means related to the planning of activities changing the content of the classes and so on and so forth so we leave you with Javier
3: uh, what I tried this year was to incorporate also concepts of critical pedagogy or um, more issues uh, related to uh, how the students can change the reality. And in that sense, we worked with uh, student associations where they could uh, bring in the problems that the student association have and the students in Enschede Enschede have uh, when it comes to well-being during the corona time. And then the students in the different groups work towards how to better understand the problems, the challenges and how to solve the situation. So it's more action oriented. So again, trying to find pedagogical tools that. That are more critical about current conditions, so about oppressive situations or issues of uh, power, or who has the power to change situations on the ground so the students know there are certain well being conditions or quality of life conditions in the city, but who are the ones that could maybe change the situation? What are the structural conditions that make those situations happen or emerge?
1: Uh, what has always struck me with conversations with Javier. Uh, as part of this podcast, but also outside, is that he talks about removing this element of competition in all layers of his education. So not only in the assignments um, that he creates uh, for students to work on during their class, but also in, for example, the grading that we do, which adds a competitive element, or thinking about how that influences um, their diploma. Uh, at the end of the year or at the end of their program and their chances of entering a different university or employment.
0: So as I was saying before, Javier is a big advocate on um, changing from competitive to uh, to collaborative-based values on the education. And uh, about this, he actually explains the full strength and the impact that aiming for more collaborative practices within the education that we promote and that we facilitate somehow at the universities um, actually have not only for students but also for the staff.
3: Uh, the idea of having more collaborative forms of learning, that's something I also explored. Uh, so cooperative learning, collaborative learning, it's something that's I try to incorporate in group work for example that's one element that I work with but certainly something that we can do more and sometimes students feel that they need to compete and they need to uh, have a certain uh, grades to be recognized or to uh, that that's something that's always there and that's a challenge sometimes to to move towards more collaborative forms of learning. I still believe that we can do an experiment on how to improve that, and we are spending more time on that, I think that that's pretty useful. We also, certainly these dialogues are a way of reflecting on that, and of course we need to do much more, talking and discussing is one issue but then actually implementing is another, so that's a, a big challenge. and. Even you may design a course with collaborative forms of learning and uh, with many elements of humbling, listening, desilencing, but at the end students expect a degree and they expect a mark because some of them, they feel that they need to go to the the labor market, as they may call it, and then they need to show that they achieve an eight or a nine or a ten. And if it's just a pass uh, we only if we remove, let's say, grades, for example, or, or if we uh, do not concentrate on, on the competition aspects, then they feel that they are not showing that they are good enough. So that there is always this dilemma. But some elements of the course do not need to have uh, a mark, so or they may have. They may be just formative. I think there is enough space to incorporate these ideas of humbling, listening, collaborative forms of learning and definitely critical perspectives.
1: And Javier, just like Rosalva, is also very critical towards what materials um, you can use in your education.
0: He reflects a little bit, not only about the things that we have to read, but also on the tools that we use during the teaching and as part of the teaching.
3: Uh, When they read, for example, a paper or when they read a book, that they take a critical perspective, so they can even think Uh, from which position this author is writing what he's writing, Uh, what values this author has or is promoting. Uh, Or, for example, if they're using software, who owns the software? Who owns the data that I I put into this software? If I have to work, for example, with an NGO, will that NGO uh, be able to use that software? So even in, in some more technical aspects, you can incorporate many of these questions, so not only in a strictly planning terms or geographic terms. Also, when it comes to the technology, these issues are also there. There are several spaces for debates. Uh, maybe we have to be creative in how to include more direct democracy in the, the university. But yeah. I'm not sure if that's one way of maybe reflecting on these issues, but we see that every year we we have an increasing awareness of issues of uh, silencing and desilencing. So um, that's something that we still can reflect on. But I don't have an answer. I also don't know. And direct democracy also in the universe does not mean that some groups will be still privileged. Yeah, so that's also a, a dilemma. The ideal future would be if we have a university that collaborates more with society and is more empathic with society. And the only way to do that is if you are, I think, the four elements that Rosalva mentioned. If you uh, reflect on where do we start from, so the positionality, accept to listen to others, the humbling element, uh, listening to multiple stories and multiple knowledges, and then the idea of the silencing. So I think if you want to be a university which is empathic with society, you will have to deal with these issues. You cannot claim, so that that would be maybe the way forward.
1: So what we learned from this webinar, for me, it was honestly overwhelming in a certain extent. Um, Not only uh, conceptually, uh, that Rosalba introduces a lot of concepts that I was not completely familiar with, um, but now feel like I'm starting to grasp. But also really... Yeah, this... but
0: that also they are so relevant. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, confronting. Yeah, completely. Which made it intense to listen to and to experience, but I'm also so grateful that we got this opportunity. Um specifically the question of is it even possible to have universities that are not exploitative of people and life on earth yeah that one kept buzzing in my head well actually is still running in my head and I'm not sure how to answer it and yeah I think I am with you it
0: was co- completely confronting I, I guess also it made me kind of reflect I, I guess on a very super fast flashback I went when she was presenting all these concepts you know like back to everything that I have been doing particularly as part of the university and trying to do like a super quick assessment when she was presenting on how did I do this and how bad was it you know like officially (laughs) I I guess the more she presented these things I really tried to put them not only in education that it was relatively kind of like the focus of it but also on research Taking also research as a learning exercise from everyone yeah. involved. And um and it was indeed very confronting, and I think <laughs> I was actually just saying Fena before, like when we were off the mic, that I really need to listen to Rosalva's webinar like a couple of more times, not only for the conceptual thing, but because every time that I listen to it, I just find that more powerful and it connects so much to practically all the reflections that we kept having in different parts and with different emphases through the whole series of the yeah. podcast. Um, like that, actually, I found that the perfect webinar to round up all these, like all these, yeah. The all series. These, yeah, the series and the dialogues, not with the guest speakers. I guess it was like a super interesting way for yeah. us to connect everything, and left us here with this mega question that it was. Yeah. Like, wow, okay. But
1: luckily also also with some tasks. Yeah. So it leaves us with homework, I guess. Or not homework because it's during our work, it's our job. (laughs) Um, But those tasks of uh, positionality, of humbling, of listening, of desilencing, it was... For me, it was really great that she uh, she sort of gave us this lifeline. Yeah. She let us swim for a little bit, like made us scared, but then also showed like, okay, there are things that we can do in our uh, daily life and work to at least make it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think the conversation with Javier also shows really nicely or really beautifully how he is doing that Little by little. As good as possible in his education and research.
0: I think that was actually very important also to see like the example and the reflections of someone that it has been kind of questioning, like on the same line than Rosalba, but also trying to implement some changes within
1: a kind of more, yeah,
0: yeah, like within this very structured field that it is also urban planning, No, I'm very actually Western. And
1: within the University of Twente.
0: Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. But actually going back a little bit to the question of Rosalba, uh, one, I kind of love the fact that she left us, despite that she, as you say, Fena, she kind of gave us this task to try to do something about it. Yeah. Um, she also left us with a kind of discomfort. Yeah. With that question. And I, and I find that very, very interesting. Uh, But also that they were not only learnings about university only, so they were not things that we only could ask or question ourselves with regard to research, education, and everything related to academia, but also to other aspects of our lives.
2: It has been crucial to work with the students. It has been crucial to be working with them, who are much more attuned to what is happening in the classroom, to what are the interest of students um, and how they are making sense of the, of, of the knowledge they are being confronted with or, are, or acquiring. And this brings me to the example of bodies and embodiment. In one of my classes, of course, as feminists, bodies and embodiment, this is one of the topics that I really like to teach about. And one of the examples is that, um, when we were discussing about this, um, I started with the uh, Da Vinci triviatarian man that you are looking into the right hand of the, of the, of the, of the screen. And I used to ask, I, I don't teach this class anymore, but I ask the students, most of them are postgraduate students from ISS that are coming from every corner of the world. <laughs> Let's put it in those terms. Um, and I always ask, who is this man and who painted? Every single one knows. There is every single generation I ask, and I have been teaching there for 14 years, every single generation knew who this guy was and who painted. And I always show, after that, the Koyoshaotli. The Koyoshaotli is the daughter of Coatlicue. That is that are two of the central goddesses in Aztec uh, Cosmovision. Let's call it Cosmovision, but it's actually a philosophy. And, um, and of course, nobody knows who is Koyoshaotli and Coatlicue, uh, sorry, it's, um, difficult for me to pronounce as well. Of course, I was not surprised. It's an exercise, it's a way of uh, positioning what comes next. And what comes next is that I have asked the students to share with me stories that are not grounded in an European local history or um, understanding of the world, and in this case, of bodies and embodiment. And the answers are amazing because it reveals how ignorant most of us, most of us coming from the global South, but also the few students coming from the global North or other countries in in North Europe and in in the States or in Australia, we realize how ignorant we are about each other. And it might look like nothing, but this this is what I'm actually suggesting as humbling. In the presence of this plurality, in the presence of this vastness you teach humbling, you teach to be humble to the vastness of this uh, knowledge, but also, and uh, this is the most interesting uh, part of, not the most interesting, but one something that has been very interesting for me is that this is also how, something that I will name uh, following Sarah Mota is what Saramota uh, conceptualizes as epistemic affirmation. It's not just recognizing how ignorant we are about our own histories, our own knowledges, and by own I mean the knowledges of the, the geohistoric is- histories and legacies that we carry with us as students or teachers or migrants in the global north, but we are also aware of, by naming this, other local histories. This is an active politic of affirmation. This also exists and this can create lots of conversations that are extremely important, especially for a classroom in which you have the former colonial subjects dealing with the task of decolonizing themselves, but also people that are speaking from a different positionality that is across the imperial divide, let's put it in those terms, that live and experience the construction of their subjectivity in radical different forms that those across the colonial divide. And in this encounter, what brings us together is our common ignorance, not, not floating in the space, but very much grounded on how one of the representations of the body is dominant. Is well known. Is everywhere, even in T-shirts. No, somebody said, oh, "I have in a T-shirt." So that's the popular culture. So how, why? I think that this um, this took a lot of time. So-
1: This was the sixth episode of the Dialogical Spaces podcast. We hope that all the questions and discussions emerging from this space help you reflect critically on structural issues affecting diversity and inclusion in our research, education, and practices.
0: You can find all the information in the description of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is post-produced by Sara Trejos from Sijana Studios. Thank you to Rosalba and Javier for participating in the episode today.
1: We are Fenna and Anna, and we hope that you will join us again.
0: Bye!